Amen, amen. Let us pray together. Lord, oh, that we would take a moment every day to stop and to think and to praise you for your amazing grace. And in that moment, every day, Lord, it would be a moment that would stay with us for the duration of that day. And Lord, if you choose to allow us to open our eyes the next day, it would be the grace of God that is on our hearts and minds because of the finished work of Christ Jesus. And when that day comes, where our last breath is on this earth, and our first breath is in the sight of our Savior in heaven. Lord, your grace, your amazing grace, will get sweeter and sweeter and sweeter for all eternity. Lord, we praise you and we thank you. And Lord, as we turn our attention to your word this morning, Lord, we pray that our hearts are full of worship towards you. Lord, that our hearts through the Spirit of the Lord that lives in us, dwells in us. Lord, our hearts would be open to your word this morning. Lord, that we would trust your word, that we would respond to your word in faith. To God be the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you would open your Bibles to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. We're going to continue our series through Psalm. If you're joining with us on campus and you do not have a copy of God's word, I would encourage you to look underneath the seat in front of you or underneath the seat that you're sitting in. There should be a blue Bible there. Please open up to page 570. We're going to be looking specifically at verses 65 through 72 this morning. And the psalmist, we don't know who the psalmist is, but we know that the psalmist uh, has, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has laid out this amazing psalm, 176 verses, the longest chapter in the Bible, uh, broken into 22 different stanzas, eight verses each. Uh, It's a poem that the psalmist wrote, uh, and all of it is centered on the amazing word of the Lord and what the psalmist does through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is he takes each of those 22 stanzas and he incorporates that to one of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet and each of those verses in that stanza also begin with that same Hebrew letter and we've been looking at what that looks like uh, every week in the Hebrew language and so this morning as we look at that ninth stanza every letter uh, the first letter of every verse uh, begins with the same Hebrew letter And when we think about the Hebrew letter Tet, uh, it really is a picture of the goodness of God. And what we find in this particular psalm, in these particular eight verses, this part of the psalm, is there are uh, six times that the Hebrew word good shows up. And what I love about this psalm as well, this chapter and this particular passage that we're looking at today, is out of those six occurrences of the Hebrew word for good, five of those start the sentence, the verse off. And so it's a picture of the goodness of God. And I, just a question, if, if you had an opportunity to write eight verses uh, containing what you feel represents the goodness of God the most, what would the content of those eight verses be? And I re- the reason why that question is so important for us 
to ask and answer is because the context in which the psalmist writes concerning the goodness of God uh, this morning, specifically in this passage, is the goodness of God as it relates to the affliction that we walk through. In other words, the psalmist in these eight verses is coaching his soul to remember, to reflect on, to celebrate, and to rest in the goodness of God, even in the midst of great affliction. The scripture says, beginning in verse 65, the psalmist says, You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. And this morning we're going to look at three specific ways that the psalmist experiences the goodness of God, and I pray that you and I would experience those same things in our life as well. The first way he sees it is God's goodness in restoring. God's goodness in restoring. God is the God who restores. And the psalmist personally experienced this. In the first two verses there, he says, you have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgments or good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. And so right out of the gates, the psalmist wants to focus in on the goodness of the Lord. Again, in verse 65, he says, You have dwelt, uh, dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. In the Hebrew, the verse would say it like this, Good you have done to me. Good you have done to me. Here the psalmist describes himself as God's servant, And to his Lord, Yahweh, the great I am, the covenant-making and the covenant-keeping God, he says, you have dwelt well with me. That phrase, dealt well with, communicates God's ability, and this is important, God's ability to have good come out of a situation when our human perspective doesn't allow it to happen. Think about Job for just a minute. In the book of Job, the first chapter, we find that uh, Job is uh, blameless and upright. This is what God's word says about Job. He's not perfect, but he has a heart for the Lord, right? Uh, The scripture says that he's a righteous man. And yet, uh, there's a dialogue between Satan and God in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And to our knowledge, Job has no uh, inside knowledge of this. We have the benefit of looking back at the book of Job and seeing this dialogue between God and Satan. And and basically, uh, Satan says, God, the only reason why Job is faithful to you is because you have blessed him mightily. And God says, no. And so God allows Satan to attack Job. And that's important, that that God allows things to happen in our life. He doesn't necessarily cause all things to happen, but he does allow things to happen in our life, but it's all under his sovereign control. And here's what happens in Job's life in that first chapter. Uh, He loses just about everything. He loses his children, he loses his wealth, he loses his uh, property. So all those things are stripped away, right? And, And what is Job's response after this, he says, uh, Job says in verse 20 and 21 of chapter 1, he says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. So he's hurting, he's mourning, right? This isn't fantasy land, this is real life happening. And the scripture says, And he fell on the ground and he worshiped. So in Job's darkest day, 
He chooses to do what? He chooses to worship uh, the Lord. Verse 21, and he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, from a human perspective, right, and some of us, even as Christians, we struggle with this. From a human perspective, Job had every reason to curse God, right? In fact, Job's wife says that to him. Why don't you just curse God and die? And yet Job, in his darkest hour, his darkest day, he's trusting in the goodness of God and the sovereignty of God. And what we find in Psalm 119, the psalmist is anchoring his life and the promises of God even when he's experiencing great affliction. He says, you have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to what? According to your word, according to your promises. This is a statement of trust. The psalmist is clinging on to the promises of God, the goodness of God, and the context in which the psalmist is writing and declaring this very statement is what? He says in verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. So the psalmist is giving us an inside look of his own personal testimony. He says, There was a time in my life when I was doing my own thing. I was running my own race. We just saw the video of John Newton about amazing grace. He's doing his own thing. He's living for himself. And guess what? Things were going pretty well. Things were quite good. But God intervened with affliction to get my attention. You know, we see a picture of this in Jeremiah 22. In Jeremiah 22, verse 21, the scripture says, I, the Lord, spoke to you in your prosperity when life was easy, when you were living in comfort, when you were living in self-sufficiency. But you said, I will not listen. This has been your way from your youth, that you have not obeyed my voice. And the context of Jeremiah 22 is God's judgment is coming on the people of God because of their waywardness, because of their open rebellion. They chose not to listen. Now, why is this fascinating for us? Because when we get to Psalm 119, the scripture says in verse 67 that the psalmist went astray. So you have open rebellion in Jeremiah. But then the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 67, that he went astray. That phrase, went astray, is only used four times in the Old Testament, one being right here. Another occasion is found in Numbers 15. So understand the context of what's happening in Numbers 15. Look at the verse, verse 28. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally. That's the same phrase or the same Hebrew word for went astray, that word unintentionally, to make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. So at the end of the day, we must recognize that all sin is sin, right? And all sin requires restitution, right? It does. And in the Old Testament, there was, God gave provision by his grace. He gave provision through the priest to make a sacrifice that would atone for the sins that were unintentional, unknowing, not recognizing the weight of those sins. And I've used this illustration before, but it's a perfect one. Anytime you get in the car, you are required to know all the laws, right? Of not just the laws of your town, but every town you go into. And even if you don't see the speedy limit sign, and you're caught for speeding, your defense can't be, well, I didn't know. Because guess what? More than likely, you're going to get a speeding ticket, right? 
And so here's the picture here. The scripture says that the psalmist went astray unintentionally. He was being led away from the Lord. And praise be to God that because of the finished work of Christ, our sins, both in open rebellion and unintentionally, have been forgiven in Christ Jesus, right? Praise God for that. That is important. And the scripture says that, that I went astray. So the psalmist is not making excuses for what he did not know. He's owning his own sin. But the psalmist is admitting that I have some blind spots in my life. I have some things that I don't recognize on my own. And these blind spots are leading me away from the Lord, right? How many of us have blind spots in our life? And we need God to get our attention, to show us what's really there. You know, sometimes God will use the sins of others to expose our own sin. I mean, how many of us have watched somebody, I mean, just wreck their life because of their choices? And instead of having a heart of compassion and grace and God, how can you leverage my gift or gifts to, to try to help them return to the Lord? We, we sit in judgment. And, and it exposes pride, right? Like we just somehow think we're better than them. And yet we're just as uh, susceptible to deception and being led astray as they were, right? And so sometimes other people sin, expose their own sins. And the psalmist says, Lord, I have some blind spots in my life. I have places in my life that are causing me to drift away from your word, places that are, yes, unintentional, However, in your goodness, you have done what? You have gotten my attention, right? And he says that you allowed affliction in my life. That word affliction means to be uh, humbled or troubled or, or bowed down. And so this, this affliction, this intervention that was necessary isn't easy, right? It's quite painful, in fact. And again, from a human perspective, this makes no sense to us. In fact, if it wasn't for the goodness of God in our life, and our trust in the goodness of God, we would reject God's way of intervention time and time again, right? This is where the question comes up. If God was so loving, why would he allow this to happen to me? That's a human perspective, right? But when we understand the goodness of God, though we may not like it, and though it is painful, it is absolutely necessary to get our attention. And so the psalmist says, thank you for getting my attention. Thank you for restoring me. I was going astray, but now that you have my attention, he says, I will keep your word. I will guard it. I will treasure it. I will live for your word. Man, what words of grace? I mean, think about it. This reminds us that change and transformation, no matter what, is possible in the Lord. That's what the psalmist is telling us. Yes, I was doing my own thing. You got my attention. And guess what? I have turned to your word. And notice how the psalmist responds because of the goodness of the Lord restoring him. He says in verse 66, Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. The psalmist says, I trust your word, therefore deepen my faith in you. And his prayer, this is a prayer that he's praying. Teach me. He says, Lord, in your goodness, cause me, cause me to learn discernment, that is the judgment, and truth, that is the knowledge. So the psalmist desiring to rely on God's word. He wants God's perspective in his life. He wants to be able to understand God's word so that he can apply it in each and area of his life. Lord, I have wandered from your ways and you have graciously restored me and given me a renewed hunger for your word. How many of us need a renewed hunger for the word of the Lord? You know, it's the blind spots that cause us not to have a hunger for the Lord. 
And sometimes God has to wake us up. He has to get our attention. How many of us have experienced God's restoration through affliction? Yes. Painful, but absolutely necessary. So we see God's goodness in restoring. Second thing we see is God's goodness in sustaining. God's goodness in sustaining. God and his goodness can sustain us even when affliction comes. And so the first affliction that we see in the first part there is affliction because of his own sin. Now the second affliction that we're going to find out is not his own sin, but the sins of others. And we see this in verses 68 and seven, through 70. He says, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like like fat, but I delight in your law. Notice the simplicity and the power in the first part of that, that verse 68. It says, you are good and do good. In the Hebrew, it would say, good you are and good you do. Praise be to God for that. The Lord is of the highest good and his goodness is guaranteed. How do we know? Because his nature, you are good. That's who he is. That's his character. That's his essence. The psalmist writes in Psalm 100, verse 5, For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. This, this psalm is a psalm of thanksgiving, and he's praising the Lord. He's thanking the Lord that he is eternally and unchangingly and unconditionally what? He is good. It goes on from generation to generation, and praise be to God that God's goodness is not dependent on me. It's not dependent on my faithfulness or your faithfulness or my goodness or your goodness. He is good all the time. That is his nature forever and ever. The Apostle James says in James 1, 16 through 18, he says, do not be deceived, my beloved brother. So he's speaking to the church, and the context here is that the church is being tempted to turn away from the Lord, right? Uh, because they're experiencing, guess what? Affliction. So they're being tested by God and tempted by Satan, and they're being deceived, potentially. And so James is writing to them and says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Why? Every good gift and every perfect gift is from God above, coming down from the Father of lights. In other words, God is the source of everything good. Everything that is good. He goes on to say that his goodness does not change, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And his goodness brings about life. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, and that goodness is unending. He says that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In other words, God has done some awesome things in our life, right? He has saved us from our sins. He has restored us. He sustains us. He provides for us. And all of that is just a foretaste of what is to come. Something that is far greater. That day when Jesus comes again and all of creation is redeemed. All things are made new. There's no more trial, no more pain, no more temptation, right? And what God is doing and what God has done in our lives now already is just a foretaste of what is to come in the future. God our good is who God is, and good is what he does. Jesus said himself in Matthew 5, verse 45, in the great sermon on the mount, for he, speaking of the Lord, makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Do you hear what the scripture says? This is what theologians call common grace. So God has common grace in his goodness. He has common grace for who? Everybody doesn't matter if you're part of the family of God or not. 
He has common grace for every person on the planet. The rising of the sun and the rain from the sky speaks of this. And here is the psalmist. He's being reminded of the goodness of God and during a great time of affliction. And notice where this affliction is coming from. He says in the first part of verse 69, the insolent smear me with lies. So his affliction is coming from what? The sins of others. He says, I'm dealing with some very difficult people. Anybody experienced that before? He talks about them being insolent. That is the wicked, the prideful, those who uh, have nothing to do with the Lord, those who uh, not only hate the Lord, but hate the people that follow the Lord. The scripture says that he's smearing me with lies. In other words, they're manufacturing lies about me. And, and here's the picture of smearing with lies. It's, it's these lies that are being manufactured, that they're carefully planned out. Uh, they're full of great deception. They're well-schemed. And the, he says that they're sticking to me. That, that word smear is talking about a glue. So think about it like this. Uh, I know we don't want to talk about school too much because it's summertime but let's say you're in school you're at your workplace uh, you're in your family and, and just everybody is talking lies about you and they're writing them down and they're putting that sticky note on your body somewhere right where everybody can see it and they're not falling off and so as you walk through your life wherever it be in your own home in your workplace in your school wherever it is everybody sees you as what whatever those lies are right? And so now your reputation is being slandered. Your reputation is being destroyed. And there is great hurt and pain there. And that's what the psalmist says. The lies that they're telling about me are starting to stick. He says in the first part of verse 70, their heart is unfeeling like fat. Now, when the scripture describes them unfeeling like fat, he's not saying that they have high cholesterol, right? They may have, but that's not what he's saying. Uh, the phrase unfeeling like fat is a picture of uh, insensitivity. Uh, they, they don't care if they're hurting you, right? That's the heart of the person. They don't care. They, they're insensitive to the things that they're saying. They are numb to the pain they are causing. They don't care how bad it hurts. They are thick-hearted. That's the picture here. Insensitive to the psalmist, but more importantly, insensitive to the Lord himself. And this idea of being thick-hearted. It's the same picture that we find in Genesis 6, uh, verse 5, before uh, God sends judgment on the world through the flood, right? The scripture says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only where? Evil continually. That's the picture that the psalmist is experiencing by these ones who are uh, creating, manufacturing, and sticking lies on his character. And through all of that, how does the psalmist respond? Second part of verse 68, he says, teach me your statutes. This is a prayer that he has. He's not blaming God, yet he's relying on God's word to sustain him during this time of great affliction. Uh, we see a picture of this in, in uh, Psalm 86, the Psalm of David, during a time of great affliction. Verses 10 through 11, the scripture says, for you are great and do wondrous things. In other words, God does miraculous things, right? God is able he says, you alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may what? I may walk in your truth, live in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. So here's David again. He's experiencing tremendous affliction. He's being hounded by those around him. And what does he say? What is his cry? Unite my heart to fear your name. 
Lord, in the midst of my chaos, in the midst of my suffering, in the midst of my struggle, in the midst of my life being turned upside down, unite my heart, bind my heart, hold my heart together for the glory of your name. Man, what a picture that the psalmist is painting for us. He goes on to say in the second part of verse 69, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Again, in the midst of his affliction, he's choosing to do what? Rely on God's word. Hold heartily. Commit my ways to the Lord. Yes, they have glued false things about me. And yes, it hurts. But by your grace and your goodness, I choose to faithfully follow you. Jesus speaks of this in Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount again, verses 11 through 12. He said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So in other words, we, we probably are going to be rewarded on this earth by many, many people. But guess what? We will always be rewarded by the faithfulness and the goodness of the Lord. And to the one, the Lord, who sustains the psalmist's life, he says in the second part of verse 70, but I delight in your law. The word delight means to, have a deep, to be deep-seated with great joy. And notice where the psalmist finds his deep-seated joy It's in the word of the Lord. He says, I embrace your word. It's where I find my greatest comfort. That reminds us that joy is not found in the absence of affliction. Joy is found in the presence, in the promise of God's word. In other words, when when I'm hurt by others, when when I am slandered, when my reputation is challenged and mocked, and my faith in the Lord is being ridiculed and shoved down my throat, My joy does not come because I have vengeance on them. My joy never comes because I can retaliate. My joy comes because of what God's word says about me. That's where my ultimate joy is found. That's why your identity, understanding your identity and living in your identity of who you are in Christ is so important because we think falsely that my joy will be found when I give vengeance on them. Or that I restore my reputation. Guess what? It's very fleeting to have that task in your life. Why? Because it's never enough. Because there might still be one person who still believes the false lies about you. And you spend your entire life trying to prove something that God has already declared over you. Pastor Tommy said, when Jesus was baptized, his father said, This is my son, who I am well pleased. And because that is true of him, for all of us who are in Christ, guess what? That is true of you and I today. God's pleasure in us is not found in us in what we do. It's found in what Christ has done on our behalf. Our ultimate joy is found in the Lord. Therefore, vengeance belongs to the Lord. Think about Joseph for just a minute in the Old Testament. Uh, Joseph was uh, sold into slavery First, his brothers tried to kill him. They sold him to slavery. He was in Egypt. He had great trial through that whole time in Egypt. But by the grace of God and Joseph's faithfulness in the Lord, uh, Joseph was, rose to power, great power. In fact, he was second in command uh, right underneath Pharaoh. And great famine came into the land where his brothers in, lived. And guess what? They needed food. And they, had, they thought Joseph was dead after all these years. And they go to get food. Uh, in Egypt, and guess who's there? Joseph is there. And there's an awesome interchange because Joseph recognized them. They don't recognize him. They come back, 
And that's when Joseph says, you know, I'm your brother that you try to kill. And listen to uh, the interchange that happens here in Genesis 50, verse 19 through 21. The scripture says, but Joseph said to them, do not fear for I am in a place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it, uh, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. I mean, Joseph had the greatest opportunity to put those who harmed him to death. And yet he chose to do what? He chose to serve them and to love them and provide them. And what gives someone the desire, the capacity, and the sustaining power to love and serve those who have hurt and wronged them? It's trust in the goodness of the Lord. So God's goodness sustains us even in our time of affliction. And then lastly, God's goodness in growing. God's goodness in growing. Affliction reminds us that God isn't finished with us yet, right? The psalmist says in verse 71, the first part, it is good for me that I was afflicted. It benefited me that I was afflicted. In fact, I don't think there will ever be a time when we look back on our walk with the Lord and say, I experienced one affliction too many. That's not what we're going to say. Why? Because it's in that affliction that we experience spiritual growth. Uh, the psalmist says in the second part of verse 71, that I might learn your statues. That phrase, that I might, is talking about exercise. So he's exercising God's truth in his life. It's a continuous action, meaning he keeps on exercising. He keeps on exercising what the Lord has taught him. And one benefit of experiencing affliction is that we will continue to exercise what God has told us in his life, in his word. Sometimes our affliction comes from God's discipline, right? The discipline is meant for our spiritual growth. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 says, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Don't reject it or be weary of his reproof. Don't hate it. Don't push it away. Why? Because it's not punishment for you. It's because he loves you. The scripture says in verse 12, for the Lord reproves. He corrects him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Why does he discipline us? Because he loves us. Sometimes our afflictions comes from uh, the fact that God does allow suffering in our life. There are times in our life when the only way that we would grow is because there's a time, a season of suffering. Uh, this is true of us. This was also true of Jesus, believe it or not. Uh, Hebrews 5.8 says this, Although he, speaking of Jesus, was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, this is an interesting verse, and we have to be careful not to take it out of context. This is in no way saying that Jesus was disobedient at one time, and because of the suffering that God put on him, now he's, he's obedient now. That's not what he's saying. Uh, the context of uh, these verses here in Hebrews 5 is talking about the fact that Jesus is our great high priest, right? And so the scripture says that, that the, the way that Jesus showed himself and proved himself to be the great high priest that he is, is through what? Obedience, even in the midst of his suffering. Yes, he was tested, he was tempted, and he suffered greatly. But guess what? He did all things, all things, in action, in mind, in thought, in feeling, and all those things. He did it perfectly in honor of his father. And that means that because he was tested, because he was tempted, because he suffered greatly as our great high priest, he can sympathize with us, right? 
So when we see Hebrews 4, where it says that we can go into the throne room of grace because the one Jesus, our great high priest, who has been tempted in all ways, yet without sinning, he can sympathize with us. Why? And he will give us grace in our time of need. He understands what we are going through. So this has nothing to do with Jesus being disobedient, and now he's being obedient. This has to do with Jesus experiencing the suffering so that he could prove and show that he is the great high priest. And because he is our great high priest, he is walking with us in the midst of our affliction. Again, Job is a perfect example of this. Listen, though Job, Job lost everything, just about everything, he never lost God. God never abandoned him. God never forsook him. In fact, time and time again in the book of Job, it is somewhat of a painful book to read, by, by the way. God showed his faithfulness and his goodness to Job time and time again. And it's at the end of that, again, we're talking about spiritual growth and how God allows uh, affliction in our life so that we would grow spiritually. Listen to what Job came away with at the end of all of that suffering in Job 42. The scripture says, and Job answered uh, the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. So in other words, he learned that God is all powerful, right? And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That means, God, your purposes are guaranteed. Who is it that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And so through that affliction, he says, God, your knowledge is perfect. You know way more than I do, right? Verse 4, hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. He says, I had heard of you by hearing of the ear, meaning I, I had knowledge of you. I knew who you were, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So in the midst of all that affliction, Job says, I found out, I learned, I grew in understanding that your mercy is personal to me. All of these truths were learned by Job in the midst of great affliction because of the goodness of God. So again, the Lord will allow affliction in our life so that we will have an opportunity to grow spiritually, but also he will allow affliction in our life so that we will reorient our priorities in life, right? And that's what the psalmist says in verse 72. He says, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. The Hebrew says, good to me is the law of your mouth. Good to me is the law of your mouth. Lord, you are my teacher. I am your student. And through my time of affliction, I have learned that my priorities are out of order. Anybody recognize that in life? That when affliction comes, sometimes you recognize, man, I am pursuing the wrong things. And it's in that time of affliction that we can rediscover what truly sustains our life, what truly gives meaning to our life. It's not our wealth. It's not our health. It's not all of our accomplishments. It's who we are in the Lord. It's who God says he is and who we are in him. And he says, the psalmist says, I treasure you more than anything else. That is what that affliction allowed him to do to reorient his priorities. He says, it is better to me. This is personal to him. It is better than, to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. The Apostle Peter speaks of this uh, during a time of the Christians in, uh, being in exile and talking about how precious uh, the Lord is and the word of the Lord is. He says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6-7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, for a season, if necessary, meaning there is a purpose. You have been grieved by various trials, right? So all kinds of trials, Uh, So that, this is a purpose statement, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, that affliction comes to prove my faith and to perfect my faith, right? It shows what I'm really trusting in. 
And even though I don't like what I'm going through, right? Even though it's painful, I can trust that my God will be faithful to me. I can trust that the goodness of God is for me. That, that no matter what happens in life, God does all things for the good of those who love him. And so if the Lord chooses to allow the instrument of affliction to get my attention, to cause me to grow spiritually or to reorient my priorities towards him, to God be the glory. The Apostle Paul echoes these same words in Philippians 3. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order to what? In order that I may gain Christ. So in this psalm, we see God's goodness in restoration. We see God's goodness in sustaining. And we also see God's goodness in how he allows us to grow. All of these truths are found in the word of the Lord, and they are based on what? The goodness of God. The question is, are you relying on God's word today? David writes this in Psalm 119. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Where do you need restoration today? Where do you need sustaining today where do you need growth today turn to the lord turn to his amazing word he is good and his word is good he is a good good father so as we come to this time of response the altar will be open for you to pray maybe there's places that you need to confess and repent just spend time with the lord Lord, I need you to restore me. Lord, I need you to sustain me. Lord, I need to grow in this area. And Lord, if you have allowed affliction in my life, Lord, let, let my heart gravitate more towards you. Let, let my life be that of the psalmist where I am relying more and more on the word of the Lord. And it starts with trusting in the goodness of God. So if you've never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, guess what? You're not going to trust him. Right? So that's the first step. I've given my life to you. Therefore, I trust and what you are going to allow into my life, to know that everything that comes into your life has first and foremost been filtered through the love and sovereignty of God. And he will use all things for your good and for his glory. Whatever your decision is today, I'll be up front. I'd love to pray with you.